0: Please be seated, and if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews this morning, verses 14 through 17. You may recall that the context of the book of Hebrews is the author of the letter encouraging Christians, encouraging them to persevere in faithfulness, to not give up. And so, in this way, the letter of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, has been very pastoral in nature, very caring of a particular people and the spiritual needs that they have. This morning, you're going to see this pastor of this letter get very practical. And some of you are practical kind of people. You're going to appreciate this, I think you're going to appreciate His effort to shepherd people, practically speaking. So give your attention to Hebrews chapter 12, just verses 14 to 17. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. Hard words, very practical words. Let's pray that the Lord would help us understand and apply them correctly. Lord, we ask that you would be our teacher this morning, that you would take your word and by your spirit, work into our hearts and into our minds what is true, what is to be believed, and what is to be practiced. And so we ask that and we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, practical sanctification. Uh, You might have heard or used the expression, When the rubber meets the road where it really matters, where it really happens, where the rubber meets the road. That's, that's the nature of what the author of Hebrews is giving us this morning. Um, so here's my best chance to condense it into our time slot and, and, and to explore some of what is here. And truth be told, there are two or three sermons in this material. I'm giving you what I can uh, for the time that we have. Um, so last night, I decided it was probably good to conduct a a quick survey for the purpose of the sermon and so I by means of text message communicated with 24 people who I felt would be honest with me give me a one-word answer to a question and the question was this fill in the blank with one word people are blank people are blank So you could do that survey right now. If I asked you, give me one word and fill in the blank. First word that comes to your mind based on your experience. People are blank. Okay, so here are the answers that I got. I got 24 answers. From college roommates, friends, family, distant family, pastors. These were their immediate answers. People are fragile. Idiots, crazy, entitled, strange, dumb, stupid, stupid, stupid. That was three (laughs) different answers consecutively. Entitled, again, people are problems, confused, selfish, beautiful, stupid, (laughs) awesome, sinners, Lazy, difficult, crazy, complicated, messy, beautiful, and self-centered. 24 answers to a one-word survey question. 24 answers. Twenty-two of them were negative. Two were positive. I don't know what was wrong with those two people. What were they thinking? (laughs) People are awesome, people are beautiful. So I immediately deleted them from my phone. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, 22 out of 24 comments, um, immediate gut instinct, people are difficult. People are crazy. People are dumb. And by the way, I I did seek some counsel. Um, Do I actually tell the church what people said? Do I use the word stupid? And someone, a pastor reminded me, the word stupid appears almost 20 times in your ESV Bible. So I used the actual language that people gave me. So Hebrews is a pastoral letter. It's written by a shepherd to sheep who are at risk of wandering away. And it was practical ministry to these people who were themselves fill-in-the-blank kind of people. You know, we've not changed. People have not changed. Um, I got a feeling... Ask in private, the author of Hebrews, what these people were like. He's going to say, you know, they're difficult. They're not thinking well. They're thinking about abandoning everything that they have. People have not changed. We've not changed. Since Genesis 3, that event of the fall, it really did ruin humanity. Y'all, it really did affect us. We are sin broken, and we always have been. And so people are in our own experience here it is prone to conflict. That's what all that means. People are prone to fracture. They're prone to division. They're prone to divide from one another, to get angry with each other. And so in three quick no they're not quick. In three points what we're going to see the author say this morning is that he wants them and therefore us To get along with each other, to be holy, and to be warned by the lesson of Esau, which is where the real application is. So those are the three points we're going to look at. We're to get along, we're to be holy, and we're to be warned by the lesson of Esau. So he begins by saying what in the NIV says, Make every effort which is to strive. Other translations will use the word strive. And, and let's understand what that is. He is saying this is going to take some work on our part. This is not going to be easy. This is not immediate nature to you. You're going to have to strive. You're going to have to make effort to get along with people. So make sure you're exercising that effort. That's verse 14. Make every effort to be at peace with everyone. Now, why would you have to tell people that except for we tend to not be at peace? There tends to be division. There tends to be fracture. There tends to be tension. There tends to be disagreement. And he says, he applies this in two ways. First, make every effort to get along with people, to be at peace. And we could say those within the church and those outside of the church. But God's people are supposed to be a people who make a real effort, a sincere effort to get along with everyone. Okay, so let's sit on that for a moment. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians making the same commentary as the author of Hebrews. Make every effort to be a people who are at peace. And he's speaking to those within the church. So those within the believing family, how have we done throughout history in getting along? What's our history of conflict uh, in, in, in the history of the earth? Well, it's, it's not great. We have biblical history, and we have heard some of these stories in our study of Hebrews. But, you know, it was Genesis chapter 4, soon after Genesis chapter 3 in the fall, that we're told of Cain and Abel, two brothers. We're told in Genesis chapter 4 verse 8 that Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him in the field. Then we know of Paul and Barnabas in the New Testament, Acts chapter 15 verse 39. It's said that Paul and and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. And that was in the context of ministry as the church. In Philippians chapter 4 verse 2, Judea and Syntyche. They're told in Philippians 4, I plead with Judea and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind In the Lord, these were two women who were quarrelling and in conflict. But soon after that same passage, they are they are acknowledged as being pivotal in ministry. These are Christian women, and they're fighting with each other. So, whether Old Testament or New Testament in biblical history, it's not hard to find examples of conflict, division between people. That's how it's been in biblical history. Well, what about church history? Well, I don't need to say too much here because I think it's just obvious. But there's a lot of conflict in church history. Theological debates, some of them very important and necessary. Some of them not important and not necessary. Speculation about angels and how many could dance on the head of a pin. Apparently that really happened. We will fight over anything. People will conflict. We are prone towards division. Councils and creeds and confessions which led to conflict or came from conflict, much of which was necessary, but conflict still. Excommunications, persecutions, exile, uh, denominations, and the nature of fractured churches and denominations. Good grief. Um, If you want to be scared... Look at the timeline and the family tree of Presbyterianism. There's fracture everywhere. And my point is simply that we come from a people of conflict, and we are a people of conflict. And the author of Hebrews is acknowledging that. He's saying you need to make every effort to be at peace because there is a sin nature in you that wants to war with anyone over anything. And that is not holy. That is not how the church should be. That's not how the people of God should be. But as sinners, we are prone to fracture and for division. It's in every single one of us. So I remember in campus ministry, um, how many times would freshmen arrive in August and girls... Uh, would be paired up to live with each other and guys would be paired up to live with each other but but guys didn't talk like this and guys didn't tell these stories but the girls would be so excited to live with each other and they would become the best of friends immediately and they would say oh I love you and they would hug on each other and they were so close and how many times um, were those two girls not talking to each other by Christmas it's true division fracture Somebody borrowed my shirt and didn't tell me, I'm so mad. Or somebody keeps playing with the thermostat on the wall and making it cold in here, or making it hot in here, and people will get mad and they won't talk to each other, and then friend groups split. And it's not just college students who can be that way, right? Think about your own work experience, the workplace, your own home, your own life in your neighborhood, your community. People will fracture over anything and everything. But the author of Hebrews says, no, 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 no. You've got to be a people who make every effort to be at peace with everyone. Don't make fracture easy. Make it hard. Make it hard to happen. Okay, so I remember in my first year of marriage, a newly married husband in youth ministry. And um, our first fight in our marriage, what was it about? Are you ready for this? It was over how... To make rice. I came from a family that made instant rice. Made it quick, very quick. I think it was a five-minute rice. They probably do it in a 30-second rice now. I think we've upgraded our technology. Well, my sweet young bride of just a few months, she made rice different than my family did. She did some some method that you you had to let it simmer for 30 minutes. And this sweet, tender-hearted guy was like, what are you doing? That's not how you make rice. Well, that's how we make rice. No, we're not going to make rice like that. It's inefficient. I've told you before I'm an efficiency freak, right? If you can do it fast, do it fast, do it well. And so we, here we have this conflict over boiling rice. We don't eat rice in our family anymore. <laughs> we solved that conflict. Um, so why do I tell you that story? we will fracture over anything in this world rice rice whether five minutes or 30 minutes it's it's rice it's insignificant and so you could tell your own story of of things that have fractured you maybe from mom maybe from dad maybe from grandparents maybe from siblings maybe from Friends at school, maybe from co-workers, maybe from church members. But the author of Hebrews says, you've got to weigh what really matters. Is it significant? Is it insignificant? If it's insignificant, don't let something easily fracture the people of God. So whether biblical history, church history, or even in our modern era, In our modern era, where we're living right now, um, there's a recipe for fracture that is probably unlike any that the world has known in, in what social media will do to people. Where you can say something to somebody across the globe and start a fight of some kind with someone or hurt someone's feelings, right? So we have this potential, this powder keg of potential to see division in the church and with people that we don't even see face-to-face. That's the world in which we live. So on Facebook this week, um, I laughed when I saw a comment. It popped up on on my site, on my visibility, because I'm friends with this guy. And he made a comment. So the post was originally by um, War History Online. It's a Facebook group. And that War History Online posed a question for people to answer. And um, the question was, what is the most underrated battle in history? And my Facebook friend, who's a PCA minister, just posted without any comment, General Assembly. Now, that is a non-church environment, right? Nobody knows what General Assembly is, but it was an inside joke for him. And, and if you don't know what General Assembly is, that's our Presbyterian once-a-year meeting of all the business of the church. We'll meet in Memphis in, in June, and you know what? It can be a battle. It can be a war. Every year there's issues, there's tensions, there's conflicts, there are people who are mad at other people. And so it's funny. That's our modern era. We can pick fights and have fights, not even in person but online. And the author to Hebrews says, don't easily fracture from one another. Make every effort to remain at peace with the people of the church. Biblicalleadership.com I did a little research this week. In 2012, Biblical Leadership, who tends to churches and engages in, in the affairs of churches, they said, In the American church, $683 million was spent on church conflict and resolution. $683 million. Now, I'm going to take their word for it um, that that's, that's accurate. But just think about that for a moment. That's tithes and offerings of the Lord's money being spent in dispute and conflict of various kinds. We're a people of conflict. We're a people of fracture. And the author of Hebrews says, that is not good. The Puritan Richard Baxter said, He that is not a son of peace is not a son of God. All other sins destroy the church consequentially, but division and separation demolish it directly. That's the kind of tone and nature that the author of Hebrews has towards conflict. We're to be sons of God, and if we're sons of God, we live as sons of peace. We want to promote peace. We want to be for peace. We want to make every effort to see peace exist in the house of God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers... They will be called sons of God. And so what is your commitment to peace? Are you willing to see your personal preferences die for the sake of peace? Maybe a a tradition that you favor that is not really significant, but one you really like. Are you willing to see that die for the sake of peace? Are you willing to see your own will die for the sake of peace? Blessed are the peacemakers they will be called sons of God. Jerry Bridges in The Practice of Godliness says this, Christians must take the initiative to restore peace. Jesus taught that it makes no difference whether you have wronged your brother or your brother has wronged you. Either way, you are always responsible to initiate efforts towards peace. If we are serious about striving for peace, we won't be concerned about which of us is the offending party. We will have one goal, to restore peace in a godly manner. Unresolved conflict between believers is sin and must be treated as such. Otherwise, it will spread throughout the body like cancer until it requires radical spiritual surgery. It is far better to deal with it quickly when it is more easily contained. Don't we know that to be true in our heart of hearts? We know that to be true. But it's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to lay down your will or to eat your words or to eat your emotions and preferences. But for the sake of peace and making every effort to strive for the peace of the church. We're supposed to be those kinds of people. Otherwise, our witness is a bad one. It tells the world we're not any different than the world. And so everything really is at stake with how this is executed or not executed in our lives Now, there are substantial things to divide over, and we know that from church history. We know that from biblical history. There are divisions over doctrine that are worth fighting for, that are worth bleeding for. But isn't it true that it's usually the petty things that divide people? It's usually the petty things that fracture churches. Issues of tradition... How something looks or sounds or feels. Should any of that change, and then the risk of fracture becomes close to us. Personal preferences, where it's my way or the highway. These are the kinds of petty things that people tend to divide over. So here's a list of things um, that I, or pastors that I know, Uh, have lived through tension and fracture or risk of fracture in churches. And you'll know these to be true. People have fractured over carpet color decisions. Whether to have chairs or pews. Paint color on walls. Oh, whether or not to pour a concrete slab to play basketball on. Whether or not to have a gym whether or not to have a playground, music style, events of the church, retreats of the church, personality types in leaders, programs of the church, computer tech issues in terms of whether to have a screen or a projection or none of the above, summer camps and activities, building campaigns, steeples, whether or not to have them, stained glass windows, whether or not to have them. Now when you search the pages of the Bible, those things would all be hard to find. But those are the things that tend to fracture people and fracture families. And the author of Hebrews says, no, 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 no. You've got to make more effort than that. You've got to be more committed to Christ and to His bride than to to let petty things separate you or hurt your feelings or divide you from the people of God. Make it harder than that. Otherwise, he says, a bitter root could grow. And it could defile many. And that's his real concern, is the root of bitterness. And that's all within the church. But there's also... The application that we're to be equally concerned about being at peace and getting along with everyone as much as we can outside of the church. Those who don't gather or identify or associate with the people of God. Romans chapter 12 verse 8 says, If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all, with everyone. And that, of course, would include those outside of the church family. But to be clear, let's say this. We do that, and we do it with every effort, but never to the point of compromising faithfulness or accommodating worldliness. We want to be at peace with everyone, but we don't want to become like the world. We won't seek peace with them by becoming like them, We won't compromise faithfulness, but we will do everything we can to get along with everyone. That's the kind of commitment that the church is supposed to have. And that's the first thing that he says. Make every effort to live at peace, to be at peace with everyone, to get along. Secondly, he says, and strive to be holy. To be holy. The language that he uses here, is the language of sanctification. This is not the language of justification. This is the language of sanctification. And he says, Without sanctification, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So he ratchets it up in its seriousness and his desire for these people. Your knowing the Lord, being with the Lord, is at stake here. And in that way, as we've said before, holiness... Sanctification is our job description in one sense. We're to be committed to that. Serious that the Lord is concerned for the, the way that we live our lives, for the kind of people that we are. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 23. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. When He was insulted... He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he did not respond with threats. Instead, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so that's what it is to be holy. When when you are criticized, you want to be like Jesus and not bow up and defend yourself. When you suffer, you want to be like Jesus and suffer with faith and trust in the just judge who sees your suffering. That's what it is to be holy in the midst of being treated poorly. And we don't do that well, but that's what the author of Hebrews would have for us. To be sanctified, to grow in holiness in the way that we lived. Brian Chappell says this, He says, when God removes good works as a condition for His acceptance of you, He does not remove holiness, sanctification, as a requirement of you. Now, there are important distinctions to make between justification and sanctification, and that's what he's doing here. And he does it with a few more quotes. Let me let these stand for themselves. He says, grace does not preclude holiness, but makes it possible. Holiness springs from the fountain of grace. Grace does not annul God's concern for holiness, nor should it ours. God's grace not only rescues individuals from their personal sin, it also creates a new community that is united as a family through a mutual dependence on Christ. In all of those those quotes, he is making the argument, don't confuse justification with sanctification. You are declared righteous and holy in justification. And that is where our pardon is. But God is equally concerned with our sanctification. That we are changing, we are transforming, we are not remaining like the world. And the God who justifies us promises to sanctify us. But how is that possible? How can sinners, if that Genesis 3 event really is real, if it really did ruin every one of us, how is it possible that we can transform and be made holy in the kind of people that we are? James Montgomery Boyce says this, Real Christianity leads a believer to Jesus Christ. That means that the Holy Spirit comes to live within the Christian, giving the person a new nature, creating love for God and a new desire to obey Him, and providing the ability to do what God requires. In other words, the Gospel leads to an internal transformation. That's the concern of the author of Hebrews is that these people have not explained away and excused that God wants them to change on the inside. He wants them to know that God has the power to change them and God has the will to change them. And they need to take that call to holiness very seriously. Now, last part of the sermon. This is where there's an entire sermon to be preached another day. But for now, he closes this commentary with the lesson of Esau. The Lesson of Esau. Listen to Genesis 25, 29-34. A piece of this was in the reflection prior to the worship service. But listen to this, an amazing story. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, his brother Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, Quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And that is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And so then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate, he drank, and he got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. An amazing story that just sounds like somebody's hungry and desperate for a meal, but it's given to us to communicate that far more can happen when we are dominated by our appetites in this life. Esau was understood in history and in tradition to be a man dominated by not just his hunger for food, but a sexually immoral man who could not help but to pursue his impulses. And in this way, Esau embodies how easily it is to be unholy in this life when your appetites... Go unchecked. And that's why the author of Hebrews gives, gives them this. He wants them to know, look, the kind of holiness you need, you've got to strive for it. You've got to work for it, because it is very easy to, to be dominated by your appetites. So what are the appetites? What are the appetites that tend to dominate humanity since Genesis 3 in the fall? I won't go into detail, but food, very clearly. And it was lentil stew. It was bean soup. He sold everything. He sold his soul for a bowl of bean soup. Dads, talk to your family about that over lunch today. Drink. And this is where we heard from Proverbs chapter 23. These same itemized concerns. Man will sell his soul to the strength of drink and abuse drink just as he'll abuse food. Sex and sexuality... David and Bathsheba, that account, and others, clear examples of someone being dominated by the impulse of appetite. The love of money and stuff. The sin of Achan, the sin of Judas, all examples of how the love of money and stuff can dominate a human being to compromise everything that he believes. The love of power and control. The love of being in charge can dominate the human person. The love of fame and attention. That I want to be somebody. I want to be a king of the earth. That can dominate a human person. Food, drink, sex, money, stuff, power, control, fame, and attention. Those are disordered affections that can dominate every one of us. And the author of Hebrews warns these people pastorally, listen, you got to get along with each other. You need to be holy. And you need to beware the appetite of Esau that is in every one of us. We'll sell our soul for bean soup, he says. You need to beware the sin that is in you. People are... Blank. You fill in that blank for yourself. But whatever you fill that blank with, I would fill it as we close our sermon with this. According to the author of Hebrews, people are needed. You need people. We need each other in the church. So we got to get along and we got to strive for holiness. And we got to beware worldly, sinful appetites. His whole appeal to these people, remember, is that they persevere in the faith, that they not give up. And what he says is you got to get along with each other. You need each other to persevere to run the race with endurance. If you're left one person without the other, if you lose community, if it's just a bunch of individuals, you'll never persevere. You'll never endure. The people need people. The church needs the church. And by God's grace, we can be that kind of church. So let's pray that that would be true. Lord, what hope do we have as sin ruined messes that are prone to conflict, that have unholy appetites? What hope do we have? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So Lord, would You remind us as we close in song of the power and strength You have to save and to forgive in justification, but also the power to change and to renew towards holiness in sanctification. Lord, do this for the good of Your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.